Okay, well, my name is Doug Ratchford. I'm a 75-year-old disabled Vietnam veteran. Um, I grew up in northern Kentucky. And, and during this podcast, my lovely wife, Megan, is here. My Vietnamese friend from Hanoi, Ann, is here. And Professor Eagles and his daughter are here. And um, so I guess what, we're gonna, what I'm going to do is tell a little bit about what happened to me, what I thought about it, and um, maybe there'll be some questions and some answers, and I hope this is a good podcast. Um, I'm sure it will be. Of course. The first, I think the first recollection that I remember, really, about the Vietnam War, I don't know how old I was. I was, a, I might have been in elementary school, but I might have been a little bit older than that. On a Sunday afternoon news program, which I don't even, I didn't really, I didn't want to watch that particularly, but it was on, and I think it was still black and white television at home, and so this would have probably been somewhere in the mid-1950s or so. They showed soldiers, they, and they talked about, they were called Viet Minh soldiers, and they, these, got, these soldiers were like walking through the jungles in Vietnam, and um, it was dense jungle, and they looked very serious with weapons. And to be honest, I didn't really know what that was all about. And I didn't know where Vietnam was. I may have looked it up on a map afterward, but I probably didn't. But it just sort of had an ominous feel to it. I was, it was on American television, and um, these people were very serious about their cause. And I guess at that time, the U.S. wasn't very involved at all maybe the economically financial aid or whatever. And I don't know if this would have been before uh, the French were defeated or if it would have been afterwards. I'm not sure about that. But that's like the first thing I really recall. Um, so to kind of then move forward a little bit, um, after, after high school, I went to college for two years. And at that time, I didn't really want to be in college. And I don't think I really knew what I wanted to be doing. And um, my grades were good. It wasn't anything like that. And there was a lot of, lot of pressure on young guys at that time as far as the draft was concerned. And not all of my friends. Some of my friends had gone in the service, mostly involuntary. In other words, they were drafted. And some were doing as much as they could to avoid going in, into the military. And my way of thinking was if I continue going to school and graduate, they'll probably get drafted then. In other words, I didn't think the war was going to come to an end anytime soon, which it didn't. So I, in a way, I kind of volunteered for the draft in that I did not, re I just didn't go back to college at the beginning of the fall semester. And I knew what that was going to, I knew what that meant. I'd gone to the draft board and I said, what will happen if I don't go back to school? And they said, you'll probably be drafted in November. And I was drafted in November, and that was 1967. And at that time, I was 20 years old. Um, so I think I, the, I think the letter I got, I had to go, or I can't remember the sequence, but I had to go get a, a physical at the Federal Building in Cincinnati. And, and I remember one of the guys I was with, who was a friend I knew, somebody from my high school, when they said, okay, man, let's see you squat down. And this fellow said, he played football. He said, well, I've got a bad knee. I can't do that. And the doctor said, well, you can just get dressed then. You can leave. 
and he may have had a letter from his doctor. He probably did, but I thought, gee, I should have probably said, I can't do that either. But I didn't do that. At that time, at that time, I, at that time, I think everybody I knew or knew of anyway trusted our government, and the government said that was a noble cause and it was the right thing to do to go to Vietnam and try to keep South Vietnam free and democratic, whether they wanted to be or not. And um, and growing up, there were you know when I was little, a little kid. There were lots of World War II movies still that you know we'd go to at the theater and see and. As a little boy, you know, my brother and I, and we'd, all, we'd play Army, we'd play soldiers, and to be honest, it seemed like kind of fun. And I kind of wanted to go into the Army, I really did. Um, I don't know, I felt like I had growing up to do, you know, like I felt like I needed to kind of prove myself, not, not only to myself, but to my family. And um, I don't know, I, I remember one point, like my dad said, well, you know, do you think you could go through basic training and, and do all the stuff that my brother had done? Because he had joined the Army Reserves earlier than that, and he'd gone through basic training and advanced training. And I thought, yeah, if he can do it, I can do it. And I kind of wanted to prove that to everybody, including myself. Hmm. So, in November 67, I report. I went to Fort Benning, Georgia for basic training. And that was about eight, eight or nine weeks. And... My brother went to another place in Kentucky, Fort Campbell. He hated his. I kind of liked my training. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't the best athlete or whatever, but I wasn't the worst. So whatever everybody had to do, I could do it and um, never had to drop out or anything like that, you know, in daily runs or whatever he had to do. I kind of enjoyed it. Uh, right at the end of basic training, they assigned, they told all of us where we'd be going for advanced training and what our MOS, what our uh, job would be in the Army, what our skill was. And uh, I was assigned to like undergo training to be in a mortar platoon. They call, I forget what they call that now, indirect fire, I believe. But anyway, it was mortars. And I didn't know how that sounded at the time. But looking back on it, that probably had a, that probably was a really good thing because if I hadn't done that, I'd have been what they call, like, I'd been infantry. I was infantry, but I'd have been 11B, which meant you carried a rifle and you had to walk point sometimes. I was 11C, which meant I carried a rifle and part of a mortar, but I never ever had to walk in the front. And so that was, a, that was, really, uh, that was really a plus. Hmm. After that, after the basic training, I immediately went to Fort Polk, Louisiana, which is basically in the middle of nowhere. And it was a it was a god it was an awful place it was a god awful place everybody everybody that told everybody that had been there had talked about it and I think I dreaded going to Fort Polk more than I dreaded to go to Vietnam for the war um, but anyway I went there and it was still winter time it was uh, probably probably early January when I got there and it wasn't really too cold but it meant like the swamps were dried up. And I don't like snakes, and I wouldn't want all the mosquitoes that probably would have been in Louisiana in the summer. So, so it, it wasn't a pleasant time, but it could have been worse, I guess. Then they let me come home for 30 days. And during the 30 days I was home, I believe that was when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. It was when LBJ announced that he was not going to run, not going to seek nor accept 
um, the nomination for president at that in 1968. This is 1968 now, by the way. And it seemed like there's some other events that took place, but anyway, um, I was my orders were to report to Fort Lewis, Washington, on Easter Sunday. Believe it or not, hmm. on Easter Sunday, to go to Vietnam, and uh, I, so I went to Fort Lewis. I got there on Easter Sunday. Spent about three or four days there, and then we got on a big airplane. It was a Northwest, um, you know, Northwest airline full of nothing but soldiers. And they did have flight attendants, you know, young ladies, very attractive. But the whole plane was nothing but guys going to Vietnam. It was a very grim flight. And um, so we left at Fort Lewis. That's close to Seattle, somewhere near there, Seattle, Tacoma. We left there in the evening. And I, so I guess the way it worked, it stayed night almost the whole journey. I guess we were going in the same direction as the sun was setting, I guess. And um, I think I slept a lot or whatever. We stopped, in, we stopped in Japan to refuel and we stopped somewhere else. I think it might have been Guam or Okinawa. I can't remember for sure. Those are the only stops, and they only let us out of the airplane at the one stop just to stretch our legs. The other one, we didn't even get to get out. But from then on, we were getting pretty close to actually arriving in Vietnam, and I was so scared at that time. Hmm. Um, I what don't kind know. of thoughts were going through your head then? When well, you I, don't know if I, I don't know if I knew a whole lot about how to pray, but man, oh man, did I pray in my head. The whole, for, oh, I, was, I, was, I was very frightened. I thought, gee whiz, we might land and they'll be shooting at our airplane or shooting at us or something. But it wasn't like that. We landed at Cameron Bay, which is sort of a, a place where incoming troops and outgoing troops kind of crossed paths coming in or going out. And um, getting off the plane, the heat and humidity was pretty, pretty, it, pretty stifling. It really hits you in the face. And then... Um, so I stayed at Cameron Bay for about two or three more days, and every morning, or maybe it was twice a day, they'd get everybody outside in a formation and call names, or maybe it was service numbers, I forget which, and they say, okay, you people are going to such and such a place, which meant you would be in such and such a division. And about the third day, they called mine, and I was going to a city in the Central Highlands of South Vietnam called An Khe, and that meant I was gonna be in the 1st Cavalry Division, and the 1st Cavalry Division was a division that was kind of an experimental thing at that time in that it was air mobile. Uh, we had lots of helicopters. And, um, and I, I've, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. And that was a good thing and a bad thing. The good part was with the helicopters, when we were out in the field, we could be resupplied daily. And usually we got resupplied twice a day. Usually hot food in the morning, hot food in the evening, and anything else that came along with that, water, ammunition, supplies, if there was any mail, whatever. Um, that was also a bad thing, though, in that we could be resupplied um, daily or close to daily. We would, we'd stay out in the field, and when I say the field, just out in the countryside, we would stay out, out there for about three weeks at a time, approximately three weeks, and then about the, every fourth week, we would take turns securing a fire base, an artillery base, where the artillery was and maybe some of the officers were and supplies were. 
And that would be like the best it ever got for me the whole time in Vietnam. My tour was scheduled to be one year. I'm going to get to this later, but I was wounded in action. And I was there just a little bit over nine months when I was wounded in action. So for about nine months for me, it was like a camp out. And my wife here knows I don't like to camp out. I didn't like it before the Army. I didn't hmm. like it during the Army, and I don't, don't like it now either. But we, we, we were out. Um, without going into a lot of description about Vietnam, um, it's beautiful by the sea, beaches, beautiful sand, beautiful water. Um, going inland a little bit, and I've kind of digressed a little bit. I said I was in Anke in the Central Highlands, but the main division was further north. It was up um, closer to the demilitarized de de zone. They called that i Corps. It was in a place called Quang Tri Province. So I was only in the Anke for several days for like a little, I don't know, processing, a little bit of training or whatever. And then I went up to um, somewhere in Quang Tri Province. It was called Landing Zone Jane. I have no idea where it was exactly. I mean, I never knew where I was really, but I knew I was close to the demilitarized zone. And um, this, was, this would have been sometime after Easter in 68. So the Tet Offensive was basically pretty much over with then. That was a bad time to be there, the Tet Offensive. But I missed the Tet Offensive, so I was kind of lucky about that. Um, okay, so now I'm up further north in what was then South Vietnam. And it was really nice by the sea, going inland. It was kind of rolling hills, nothing much as far as mountains or anything like that. Kind of rocky ground, the way I remember. And then further inland, there was very high mountains uh, that kind of bordered the Laotian border. So when I first got to LZ Jane, and I got, I think, I think um, myself and whoever else was going there with me, there were a few of us, I think we went in an Air Force C-130 from Central Highlands to Quang Tree. I guess that was the Marine base there. And then they put us on helicopters and then, you know, then we're going to go to join our companies. And I thought, I was afraid they were going to take me somewhere in the middle of nowhere. There would be like a firefight in progress. I had just got, you know, I was pretty much brand new. I think they had issued me a weapon by then. But I thought I'd get someplace and there'd be people shooting at me immediately. But it wasn't like that. I went to this landing zone, which was sort of a big perimeter. And it was really big. Um, helicopters landed there and there were trucks driving around and probably tanks and so forth. Um, nobody was shooting at me then, but it was night, it was getting to be nighttime was what I was leading up to. And I was afraid I'd be there and be getting shot at at night. So they put me out on the perimeter the first night and, and the perimeter would be um, like bunkers. It'd be like foxholes spaced evenly around this circle of the perimeter. <clears throat> And, I, and this was shortly after MLK was assassinated, and there were a couple of African-American soldiers at that particular bunker where I was to spend the night. And I know one of them really was harassing me as if, you know, I was a, you know he, was, he was accusing me of being a racist or, or something of that nature. I didn't know how to handle that at the time, but he was a great big guy, and I was, I was scared. I was really scared. But there were a couple other guys, and they were kind of calming. They kind of you know, told me what was up and, you know, what to think of, what to take seriously, what not to take seriously. And I kind of told this guy that was giving me a hard time just to cool it. And I, I think he realized that I was in way over my head. So he kind of cooled it after that. 
Hmm. I think about the second night there, the, uh, our, the landing zone, LZJ, and the artillery base was mortared, and that was the first time I experienced anything of that nature. Um, I think the, the mortars that the enemy was firing, I think they were aiming at helicopters that were on the ground. I think that's what was going on. It was, it was kind of, it kind of got my adrenaline going. Um, you could hear these things kind of whistling in, I guess, and it seemed like everything got really, really quiet. And then you'd hear an explosion, and um, that was my first experience with that. It was also my first experience to see helicopter gunships, and they called them Cobras, flying at night, and they'd fire rockets. And I guess it was just sort of a security thing around the outside of our perimeter, just sort of what they called harassment and interdiction fire, just mm -hmm. in case the enemy was there to tell them go away, you know, or we're out to get you, or, you know, just for safety, I guess. Hmm. It was really neat, though, the way these things operated. I'd never seen it before. Um, they'd fire miniguns, which hundreds or thousands of rounds a minute, and you could just see the, it was just like a line of color going to the ground with the tracer rounds, and the rockets had like flames or smarts, sparks coming out of the back. After a few days, our whole company patrolled in that area, which was sort of relatively flat, nothing too major. And then they got us all together, our whole company that is, and they said we we're going to be in the mountains near what they called the Ashaw Valley. And um, I don't think we're ever in the valley, but we're in these mountains. And the mountains, uh, I don't know how high they were. They were not snow-covered mountains, obviously, because Vietnam was very warm. But they were high and they were steep, and I think we were there, I would guess, probably from maybe the 1st of June until the end of September, sort of off and on. Every once in a while we'd get to go back to the artillery base, which at that time was in the mountains then. You know, the artillery would move where the men moved, because they always wanted us to be in range of artillery in case we needed support. Hmm. Um, the mountains were a big challenge for me because uh, all the equipment that I had to carry and everybody else had to carry, it had to weigh 60 or 70 pounds and I wasn't that strong, I, you know, I'm not that big and it was hard, it was really hard and um, going up and down these hills and slipping and sliding and when it rained it'd be muddy. At the end of every day we'd have to try to dig foxholes, like a hole in the ground and sometimes the ground was so hard, we would dig for maybe two, three hours, and you get about three inches deep, maybe half a foot deep. It was just, it was a lot of hard work, I think, is what I'm leading up to. Hmm. Um, and it got to the point where it began to rain, like every day in these mountains. Um, it would cloud up, like after lunch, maybe start to drizzle around three o'clock, start to rain a little bit harder. And it, it, it never, I don't think it was actually pouring the rain, but it would rain and then it would taper off around 9, 10 o'clock at night. Fortunately, uh, um, the mountains were covered with trees, triple canopy trees, which means there were three different levels of trees and undergrowth and so forth. A lot of times the rain didn't really penetrate down all that much, which was a good thing, but we'd sleep on the ground We'd sleep in the rain. Usually in the morning, you, we, you, I would inspect myself as would everybody else. 
and there would be leeches that would have crawled up my shirt sleeve or my pant leg. And you couldn't, I, I couldn't feel the leeches and they looked kind of like little worms or something like that. And um, somebody with a lit cigarette would touch the leech and it would drop off and that's how we dealt with that. As I mentioned, we usually had resupply every morning, which meant hot food and resupply in the evening. Again, we'd have hot food. Helicopters would come, and they had some kind of containers. I forget what they called them. It's kind of like a cooler, but it would keep things warm instead of that. They'd arrive, they'd drop it off, and we'd set up like a line where people would, you know, go through the line, and others, so, uh, some of us would serve others. And then they'd come back, the helicopters come back maybe 45 minutes or an hour after they arrived and pick up those containers. And I'd like to mention at this time, with the triple canopy and the trees and the jungle being so thick, uh, there were times when in the afternoon when we would stop like for the day, a helicopter would arrive and lower on some kind of a rope or a cable like a chainsaw. And we'd have to cut, I never did this personally, but guys would like have to cut down some trees to clear an opening just about big enough for a, a, a Huey helicopter to descend through the trees because their rotor blade on the top, you know, if it had to be a big enough clearing so that blade did not hit anything, and, you know, so the helicopter wouldn't crash or anything like that. Those pilots were amazing how they would do that. They were just like trying to parallel park in the smallest place you could think of, <laughs> except it was basically a vertical descent and then just the opposite, when they would leave, they could do tricks with those helicopters. Now, I was impressed with them then, and I'm impressed with them now. One of these days, somebody's going to buy me a helicopter, and I'll learn how to fly it. <laughs> but that day hasn't arrived yet, I guess. Um, how was traversing in the jungle then? Well, at this time, we were in these mountains. It was tough. It was really tough. Um, I remember, like, nights... You know, when we'd be all done, and start to get dark. And when it got dark, it got dark, you know, pretty much go to sleep. I'd say go to bed, but we didn't have a bed. But I remember sometimes the, the hillside would be so steep that we'd, like, have, we'd rest our feet against a tree that was, or a lawn, something like so we wouldn't slide down the hill in the middle of the night or something like that. It wasn't straight up and down, but it was pretty steep. Um, we had air mattresses, the kind you would take to the beach or the swimming pool and blow up. Unfortunately, mine had a hole in it, and at that time I didn't know I could just ask for a new one. So I went for a very long time, literally sleeping on the ground, which might explain why I've got neck issues today or other issues I've got today. But So would you like to talk about then um, how you got wounded? Um, I think I'd rather save that for a little bit later. What I'd like to do is talk about what was going on when I was in these mountains up in northern South Vietnam, close to the Laotian border. After that, our whole division moved further south, and now we were um, in Tainan province, which is what they called Three Corps. Now we're close to the Cambodian border. That'd be like the second part of what I want to talk about, and, and that's the area in which I was wounded. And then if we have time or anybody's interested, I'd like to talk about like the hospitalization and recuperation afterwards, if that's all okay with, yeah. with everybody here. 
But um, but before I get to your question, Trinity, um, as far as like danger being in these mountains, most I would say let's see. I would say there was, we didn't encounter any um, enemy forces, and the enemy forces would have been North Vietnamese Army soldiers, not soldiers from the South. Um, that probably happened maybe twice a week on the average, I'd say. And the way that would happen, we'd be walking sort of in a column, but you know, it wouldn't be a straight column due to the nature of the terrain. And the, whoever was in front, the guys in the front, would, would be ambushed. They would not see the enemy because the enemy would be so well concealed and me being a little further back in the mortar platoon I never had to be in the front you would just hear this tremendous uh, gunfire coming from both sides and like machine guns and all kind of automatic weapons M16s and AK-47s and oh my goodness the noise was it was deafening. I think the term I would use is a cacophony or cacophony. I don't know how you say that word. Just a lot of sound. And it was almost like everything had stopped as far as the birds or the nature sounds. And it almost be like leaves were falling off of trees. I don't know if any of that really happened. But the noise was crazy. Um, usually whoever was in the front, not always, but a lot of times they would get wounded at... Um, I guess while we were in the mountains, uh, two, two guys I knew, they weren't my closest friends, but they were friends. Two of them were, were killed due to, a, due to ambushes. Um, the first time that happened, we were, uh, the whole company, the whole line of us, and that's about 125 of us, we had gone up a hill, we were going down a hill, and we were crossing like a stream bed, I think it was a stream, it may be a little river, but not much. It was a stream, I guess. And I had found myself right in the middle of this stream when the fellows who were in front of us were ambushed. So there's all this shooting going on, and that's when my friend was killed. And I don't know if I was exposed to enemy fire or not because the trail could have gone in any direction in front of me. I didn't know which way. I could have been in danger at that time. I don't know. I remember one of the sergeants kind of grabbed me by the arm and pulled me back on the other side of the stream. Um, but so things like that probably happened a couple of times a week. Not that not that people got killed. Sometimes it'd be an ambush with with firing, and sometimes the guy, the people walking in the front, we'd be walking along a, the trail or whatever, and and the enemy would be coming the other way. And usually the enemy would turn and run because I, I think at that time we'd only encounter small groups, like two, three, not, not very many, two, three, four soldiers who were North Vietnamese soldiers. Um, but the guys in the front, our guys, they would drop their packs and they would go running up the trail after them, which to me seemed like a crazy thing to do because it, you know, it could have been a, a trap to lure people to, to do that. As far as I know, that never happened, but, but they would do that. And when something like that would happen, when there'd be shooting, when there'd be an ambush, me being in sort of the back part of the line, we would, me and my friends and all this, we would just kind of probably sit down because we didn't want to stand up with bullets flying, but we didn't know where the shooting was coming from, and we would just, you know, watch to the side of the trail to make sure nobody was there. After that, um, we would... Artillery would be called in, 
and um, fighter uh, bomber jets or fighter jets or whatever, helicopter gunships. That's the way it always worked. There'd be some shooting, like an ambush one. We'd back up a little bit, and the heavy stuff, the artillery, the jets, and the helicopter gunships would come in, and I felt sorry for those poor enemy soldiers, but I really did. Um, I'd like to say the enemy soldiers who were from the country where my friend sitting here is from, uh, was, which was then North Vietnam, they were, they were really good soldiers. They were really tough, they were good fighters, they were dedicated, they lived in the jungle for years, they were really, as we called, as we said in the military, they were hardcore. They were really, really respected by us. Um, let me think if there's anything else. Um, so like I said, occasionally we would go back to, the, to like a fire base, but that too was in the mountains, and um, then we'd go back out in the mountains. It was a brief time where a few of us, well actually our whole company was divided up into different areas, and in my squad and maybe a few others, we were along, we are supposed to secure a bridge along one of the major highways, I think it was Highway 1, which I think runs the length of the country, I'm not sure about that. And again, we're still in Quang Tri province, and I think we were there for probably two or three weeks, and boy, that was wonderful. We didn't have to do anything, except at night we'd take turns making sure that the traffic on the river below this bridge was legitimate. I, don't, I really didn't know what that meant, to be totally honest. It was pitch black, and sitting out there in the dark, I was pretty much, I was very scared, to be honest. But during the daytime, there was a village close by, right there, and there was people who could like sell us cokes, and and this lady had a picnic table in front of her house, and we would sit there. And I don't know if she had electricity for the refrigeration or just ice, but you know we had cold drinks, and you know we got to know the people, and they invited us to their home for dinner. And when I say us, it was myself and my best friend there, and so you know it was a really a wonderful time. We could swim in the river that we were supposed to be watching. Or, we could do it in the daytime, but that didn't last too long. The next thing you know, we were back up in the mountains again. And then it was getting time for the monsoon season to start. And when that started, it seemed to me like it rained almost constantly. It might rain for 50 minutes and ease up for 10 minutes and then another 50 minutes. Um, fortunately, we were, when I say we, I mean my company, we were at one of these fire bases, artillery bases, in the mountains still, but we didn't have to, you know, we could build little tents out of ponchos and stuff, and um, it was about as good as it was going to get for us at that time. And the only incident that I can really think of in relation to the time when, just about when these monsoons were going on, we're securing this base on top of a mountain, and when it was a base, it just meant that art the artillery was there. Um, one evening, and it wasn't dark yet, it was getting dark, but it wasn't dark, and we're up pretty high on a mountain or a hill, and there were some strange noises, almost like a, almost like a little animal sound, and one of the guys who was more experienced than I was, he said, you know, that could be um, soldiers trying to sneak up this mountain and, and, you know, attack us during the night. Well, when it got dark, sure enough, um, we had set out trip flares, and those are things with little wires, and if somebody doesn't see it and they trip it, then it's like a flare that lights up. 
these trip flares all, all started lighting up. And so um, the fellow I was with in the little foxhole, so to speak, we were in, he had a weapon called a grenade launcher, which was sort of like a sawed-off shotgun, and he started firing his grenades. Well, one of them hit a tree and I guess bounced, something bounced back, so he wounded himself, actually. And he was standing right next to me, but so he got he got he got wounded, and I don't know if he got sent home or not, but I think he did. I never saw him again after that. He wasn't serious though. It wasn't any, you know. I just remember him saying, "I'm hit," and I remember in the next foxhole, which was not far away, I could see them. There was a, this guy who had warned us that maybe we were going to be attacked that night. He had hand grenades, and I think he had three hand grenades in the air before the first one ever exploded, which was kind of a neat thing. I mean. You, you throw them and they explode, you throw it. But he had three of them in the air, so he, he, was, he had his stuff together. So I don't know what that was. I don't know if it was an animal that um, tripped the trip flares or if, if it was, uh, they called them sappers. They would sneak up on you and, you know, cut through the, they could get through all your defenses, whatever they, they were. I think this about wraps up the time into the mountains. Is there any questions that pertain to that particular part of what was going on. Uh, it was a much fun sleeping in the rain or doing whatever we had or climbing up and down these hills, but I survived it. But is there anything anybody would want to ask about that? I do remember you talking about how difficult it was to traverse in the mountains, in the jungles, and how you um, it was hard for you to keep track of the direction you guys were going in just because, you know, you're just in the middle of the line. You weren't close to the point. so. Luckily, that kept you from the danger of being ambushed by the enemy. But like, um, did you ever like like get out get off track from the rest of, you, of the soldiers, or was it just difficult like just keeping up? It was. It was. No, that's a good question. But no, it was like keeping up, and like you stated in your question, the trails were never you know never straight. I never. I never knew which way I'd be going as I, you know, followed along. So I never knew exactly. Sometimes I knew you could see where the guys in the front were, but a lot of times I didn't know. Um, was there another part? Oh, did I ever stray off? No, I don't think I ever strayed off. Um, I, just, I remember one time we were going up one of these, I could say mountains, and, um, you know, they were like, kind of like forest, but triple canopy forest. Somebody's helmet came off their head, and this thing's rolling down the hill, like end over end, and I don't know how I, usually I'm not uh, skillful enough or whatever, somehow I reached down and was able to grab that. If that would've gone all the way to the bottom of the hill, I guess this guy would've had to gone all the way back down to where we started from to collect that, but I, I saved him part of his journey, I guess. Um, the only, another thing in, in relation, to, uh, during this time, we, our company uh, received a new captain, and we didn't know him, and we didn't, I don't know if we had a lot of, I don't know if we knew if he, I don't know if we knew whether he knew what he was doing or not, because he hadn't been in Vietnam before, and for the evening, we were sort of set up our mini perimeter, which is a company size, 120 men perimeter, sort of a low spot. Like a, like almost like a, not a, like a low spot where the low spot in the hills were. 
And in the morning when the helicopter came to bring whatever kind of supplies it was bringing, the enemy was on like the surrounding hill, not far away. And the AK-47, you know, they fired at the helicopter and there were some people wounded, but not the, but the helicopter wasn't damaged. I mean, it was able to take off and leave. So, and that was very scary. So right after that, we, um, we packed up our stuff as if we were gonna move to another place, but we really didn't move. We just got up, went to the hill a little bit. We went up out of that clearing a little bit and everybody got down on the ground, laid low, because the theory was, well, probably the enemies, the enemies, the North Vietnamese soldiers are gonna come back and see what was left. Did we leave any weapons there or food they could use? And sure enough, one of the guys really close to me, an enemy soldier did come back and this fella shot this soldier and he killed him. The Americans shot the North Vietnamese and he was like me, he was almost brand new. And I know, oh my goodness, he was scared, you know. I'm sure that changed his life forever that he had actually shot and killed someone. And I'm so glad that wasn't me. My mm -hmm. whole time in Vietnam, I never shot at anybody. And I don't, I don't know if I could live with that if I had actually done that. I guess you have to do what you have to do. But I remember one of the sergeants congratulating him. He said, boy, that's one less you know, one less enemy we'll have to worry about. And I think he even got like an in-country in R&R, like he got to go to the beach for three days. But he felt awful about it, but in the Army's eyes, I guess, was a good thing. So do you think this is about time that you can go into when you were wounded? Yeah, we're getting to that point now, Trinity. So it was probably around in, I'd say, beginning of September when the rain started. And in Vietnam, there's different seasons. It would rain in one part of the country, but be dry in another. So our whole division, and that's thousands of people, I don't know how many, trucks, helicopters, tanks, artillery pieces, cannons, whatever, the whole division packed up. And I'm sure it was a major feat to pack everything up. And we all moved south, closer to the Cambodian border. And we went to a first place called Quan Loi. And that's where we landed, and we were in C-130 Air Force airplanes. We stayed there for a couple of days. And then we went, let's see. And from there, it's, now I'm trying to remember some things, but I remember we were at this place called Quan Loi, and that was a, like a base for a, another division. I was in the 1st Cavalry Division, but most of the soldiers there were from the 1st Infantry Division. And I remember their officers were kind of briefing us on all the bad things that had happened in this area, especially at a place called Lock Nin, which was close by. And they're telling us how dangerous this Lock Nin was. And while these other officers were t addressing myself and you know all of our guys, I noticed our officers, they're putting their packs on. They're getting ready to head out somewhere. And that's where we went. We were going to Lock Nin. Maybe, maybe they knew we were going there, but I didn't know we were going there. So we got to Lock Nin, and there was, a, there was a place, there was a location, there was a special forces camp there. And when we got down in this area near Cambodia in Tainan province, which is northwest of what was then Saigon, it was very flat, no hills, no mountains, no nothing like that. Um, but apparently it had been a very dangerous place before we got there. But for myself and our guys, we were to secure this area with a special forces camp and 
all of our artillery and all this stuff. And so I think we were, I think our company was there from probably, for probably, I'd say two months. I know we were there for Thanksgiving, and this is still 68. And it was, it was like a, it was, it was really a good time for me. I mean, we we're still sleeping on the ground, but we didn't have to go out and walk around every day. Um, they had, if you wanted to take a shower, that was possible, but it meant you had to haul like a buck, get a bucket of water that had like a, uh, what am I trying to say? Like a shower head on it. It was like you'd use if you were camping, you'd hang it up on something and that's how you take a shower. Um, but it was a pretty good deal for us. I really, you know, that was like a rest. And it got to be, I think it was Christmas Eve and they made us leave. They made us go back out and camp out in the jungle. And um, that night there were helicopters flying around, playing Christmas carols. Um, the next day, Christmas day, helicopters came to where we were. And this was just our company, it would have been about 120 of us. And they brought Christmas gifts, things like uh, Army Zippo lighters, which are kind of infamous for Vietnam, or, um, different things like that. And there's somebody dressed up like Santa Claus. Um, Let's see. Shortly after that, we moved again. We're still down in um, Tainan Province, and um, we briefly went to a city called Kuchi. And when I say briefly, I meant I think they flew us in airplanes from, I guess, where we were, maybe Quan Loi to Kuchi. Then we got on helicopters and we left immediately. And I was told that Bob Hope was going to do his uh, Christmas show that night at that place. But that wasn't for us. We didn't, you know, we went. Um, okay, so we're down in Tainan province. The terrain was pretty flat. We got, there were, there were rice paddies in part of the area where we were. So we would walk, and the rice paddies, where they grow rice, would be wet. And I don't know, I can't remember if there was water in them or not. But there were earthen dikes that we could walk on that were built above that. I don't remember that being a very dangerous time as far as encountering any kind of enemy activity or anything like that. Um, I do remember when it started to get dark, the mosquitoes had come out and they would be right, they'd be right in your ears buzzing. It was, they were everywhere. The Army had some kind of repellent, mosquito repellent. There was a liquid and you'd rub it all over your body. And we never got to clean up or anything like that. If you'd rub this stuff on you, it would stay there. And it was very abrasive. I remember I had a wristwatch and I rubbed it across my wristwatch and it scratched it all up. And a couple of days, well, for me it was only once, but we worked, I guess it was with the Navy on some river boats. And it's, again, this is still in the same area on these little tiny uh, narrow rivers, I guess. And being in my platoon, the mortar platoon, we rode on these Navy boats it was kind of like what you'd see in World War II in a way. They had a big ramp they could lower and guys could run, you know, you could go ashore. But it wasn't like that. It was a narrow river and um, kind of muddy the way I remember. And the other guys, like the guys who weren't in the mortar platoon, they were along the bank of the river. It was really narrow, though. I mean, they weren't far away. And, and they were along the, walking along this muddy bank. And the career sergeants had a very good, keen sense of what was going on. They could spot where, where the enemy had like hidden like uh, weapons and rock, uh, like rocket 
grounds for RPGs, rocket-propelled grenades. I don't know how they found these things. They'd be in plastic bags, and they might be buried. But we found a lot, they found a lot of stuff. Um, but personally, I was on the boat. I watched it, but I didn't get to do that. It was during this time that I was given like a little bit of an R&R, &R, which in country R&R. &R, I was going to go back to this place called Coochie, which was a great big um, base for a different division. It was called the 25th Infantry Division. And somehow or other, I ran into a high, not a high school friend, but a friend who I was drafted with to, from the same general area I'm from, and I knew him. I don't know how we ran into each other. So I stayed with him for about three or four days and probably went to the, uh, I don't know what they call it, like the beer hall, I don't know what they called it. We probably partied a lot and so forth. And it was a good time. Um, and I've left something out that's kind of major. At some other point during this same time, I got to go on a regular R&R, which was a week in Hong Kong, and um, it was a whirlwind week. I, I don't have too much to say about that. It was a whirlwind week. It came and went, went so <laughs> daggone fast. Um, it just came and went so quickly. Um, so now I'm going to get to the part that Trinity asked about, about um, when it was, now it's getting close to close to the time when I was wounded. So it's after Christmas, and now it's 1969, and. They gathered us all together, and they told us we were going to uh, construct a new artillery base, and it was called LZ Grant. And these were usually named after like an officer's wife or son or like LZ Jane. That was probably somebody's daughter or wife. I, I don't know how. They, but this one, but I remember this one. It was called LZ Grant. And before we went there, they were before you would do something like that. Before soldiers would go to a brand new place. They would have like artillery and, you know, they would work it over with artillery and jets and helicopter gunships. And um, the word came back that there was like red smoke, like from smoke grenades. That meant it was a hot LZ. That meant there were enemy right in the area who were probably shooting at the helicopters. I really don't know if that was true or not. I don't know. So we went to this place. And I think it had been an old French fort at one time. There were some, still some concrete structures there. And it was along a major highway. Oh, I don't know if it was a major highway. But it was a, a route pretty much from like Cambodia straight to the capital, Saigon, which is now Ho Chi Minh City. So the idea was we were going to interrupt or interdict any traffic, uh, enemy traffic, like from the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And at this time, it was getting close to when the Tet Offensive occurred one year earlier. There could have been a second Tet Offensive that they were concerned about. I don't know. So anyway, we went to this place, which was nothing, and we kind of built it up, which meant we filled a lot of sandbags, dug a lot of holes, um, strung a lot of wire, concertina wire, which is kind of like barbed wire, but it's more in coils, and that wasn't much fun. That was... And while we were at this place, uh, two memorable, thing, memorable things, three memorable things happened that I can remember. So LZ Grant was pretty much a big clearing, and I'm making, I'm using my hand for hand gestures, but since this isn't television, <laughs> nobody can see that. But surrounding this uh, clearing was jungle. But from where we stood, it just looked like trees, you know, from where we was, just looked like a bunch of trees all the way around us, 
actually there were a couple of things that happened there. I remember one thing, there was a, we had a, there was a truck that was, you know, here with us, there with us, that ran over a landmine that had been there for who knows how long. Probably goes back to when the French were there. And that exploded. And I, I don't think the driver was injured, but the truck was pretty much ruined, I believe. That was one thing I remember. And I believe where we got water from like a stream or a something, there was like a purification system or something. And during the day, our, a few of us were to, were to guard this. We, so we were outside the perimeter just a little bit. And one of my friends had a radio. And on the radio, they were playing, it was a live broadcast on Armed Forces Radio of a basketball game. University of Kentucky, which is my favorite team. I'm living, you know, that's where I'm born and raised, still live in Kentucky. It was the announcer I knew. Oh, it was just wonderful. It was like a, you know, being back home almost. It was just fortuitous that this guy turned on that radio station. That, or a, Well, I don't think we had different stations, but that's what was on Armed Forces Vietnam Radio at that particular time. And we were there, and we got to listen to it. And then the other thing that I recall... Right before they sent us out into this jungle where these trees were, well, actually, there's two things. But one of the things was, um, in the evening, they, the artillery, these are big guns, big cannons, they would lower the guns that are pretty much horizontal, and they told us we ought to get down, really get down low, because these artillery pieces would fire, they called them beehive rounds, and but it was just like a bunch of little darts is what it was. It's like a cannon shooting something with a bunch of darts. And of course, you're standing up. <laughs> that wouldn't have been good. But they were real low to the ground. And they were doing that in preparation if, if we were attacked at night. And a lot of times, the North Vietnamese would attack like in waves. There would be hundreds, you know, so they would just attack us. And, you know, and that was very dangerous for them. But these artillery rounds would be very bad for them. So they were practicing on that. And I can remember I could hear these things whistling overhead, these darts all flying in different directions. And then just and then just before we were sent out into the jungle, somehow or other we had, I don't know if we captured a prisoner or a North Vietnamese soldier surrendered and defected, but we had a, an enemy soldier in our midst. And I remember one of our officers asked him, well, like, where is the enemy? And this fellow from North Vietnam you know, in Vietnamese, he he said they were they were all around us, all around us, um, which was not a good sign or not a good thing to know. So, shortly after that, our company was sent out into this jungle, and what looked like nothing but forest from back where we started out in the clearing. It was triple canopy jungle. It was super duper thick, and um, you couldn't see anything much ahead of you or along the side of you. It was really flat. It was easy to walk. No mountains or hills to go up or down anymore. There were bomb craters everywhere. I think this place had been carpet bombed by B-52s. They were everywhere. And it was a very dangerous place. Um, I don't think too much happened the first few days we were out there. But after that, it got to the point where we were encountering enemy ambushes just about on a daily basis. Um, Again, I was never in the front, so I never, you know, I never was the one getting shot at specifically. Um, and I think the way this started, we were going through this 
a jungle or a heavily forested area with triple canopy. And um, the, the point men, the guys in the front, they must have thought it was dangerous for whatever reason. I don't know what tipped them off, but the word came back that they were going to do what was called recon by fire. That's reconnaissance, but instead of scouting ahead on foot, they fired their weapons to see if anybody fired back or... And there was like a hundred of us guys, a hundred more than a hundred, and we were trying to be quiet, but you know, there were, things were rattling and, you know, making noise. And these guys fired with their rifles to, you know, to see if there was anybody there. And so we stopped there, it was like the middle of the day, and they sent out a, like a little patrol. And these guys hadn't been gone more than two minutes, maybe less, and, and I didn't see this because I didn't go on this patrol, but the enemy, I keep saying enemy, but my friend here is from North Vietnam, and I feel kind of bad saying that, but the North Vietnamese soldiers, they were just like out and about, like they didn't, how could they have not known we were there? Like they were, they were just like, I, the way I understood it, just like, you know, they didn't even have their weapons in their hands. So again, a firefight erupted, and um, I don't think any of our guys were hurt, but I think some of the enemy were killed. So while this firefight erupted, the guy, we, those of us who stayed behind, which was the bulk of us, you know, we formed a real tight perimeter because we didn't know what was going on, and there was shooting going on. But that was, a, again, that was out where these advanced fellas had gone. And somebody, a friend of mine, accidentally was shot and killed almost right beside me. And I didn't know it had happened, but somebody accidentally fired their rifle, at, you know, just accidentally, and this guy got killed. And his name's on the wall in Washington, the Vietnam Memorial Wall. And my best friend, the one I mentioned we went to dinner at the lady's house with, he told me, he said, he said, I, he said, I know whose rifle that was, who, you know, who accidentally killed this guy, but he never told me. I guess, you know, maybe he didn't want anybody to point blame at anybody, but it was a total accident. And it seemed like from that point on, every day, whatever we do, before we got very far into it, the point people would run into an ambush, almost every day. And this probably went on for about a week and a half, I guess. I remember one of these, um, one of these times, and I think, I think this was the next day after this ambush took place, the soldier, soldier got killed by friendly fire. I think we were gonna move out and, it, for, and it, somehow we had a dog with us, like a dog handler and a dog that was trained to smell enemy, enemy soldiers, I don't know. And the dog refused to go. The dog signal was, don't go there. But the, you know, the captain said, no, we got to keep going. And so the, the platoon that was in the front, they wouldn't go. They, you know, they refused to go. So this is sort of like a little revolt in a way. Captain said, you got to go. These guys said, no, we're not going to go. Kind of disobeying orders. So it was kind of a big deal. They, this was like, let's say it's the first platoon in the front. They made these guys go all the way to the back where we were. And then the next platoon, say the second platoon, they became the front platoon. We stayed where we were, third in line. So I'd say another two or three minutes after this next platoon started walking, they were ambushed. 
So the dog was right. They shouldn't have gone there. And I specifically specifically remember the point man coming back, and he had bullet. He had been shot in both shoulders, and um, he was white as his pale in shock. And I don't think the pain had set in yet. Um, so this was kind of like a daily occurrence, actually. And I think the fact that this that we revolted, that this platoon revolted, I don't think that was very common up to that point. I've, I've read a book about another uh, company that uh, there is a revolt. It was kind of a big deal. This had nothing to do with me, but this was a similar incident. Okay, so now I'm getting to the point where things got really bad for me. Um, I know right like shortly after this, at the night, we set up a perimeter where everybody dug their foxholes, and um, helicopters were firing some rockets because they knew enemy soldiers were around. And these rockets set off a fire close to us. And, you know, I think, well, what if this fire works its way back to where we are? What are we going to do? Well, that didn't happen. But um, each night there would be people who would go out, like, for a listening post. They would go outside the perimeter, not very far, and, um, bless you, and um, they, they, if they heard activity, they would like send a signal back, like, you know, wake up everybody. Not that everybody would be sleeping, but be on alert. So these fellas, where they'd set up their observation post, was in an unused enemy bunker. So it's nighttime. And so the enemy soldiers, I, they came to where this bunker was, and they started talking to these guys in Vietnamese. They assumed it was their friends in the bunker, but it wasn't their friends. It was my friends. And um, my friend set off what's called a claymore mine, which is a, something you push a switch and it's, it's, it sets things up. It shoots balls, ball bearings, like in a horizontal direction along the ground. And the next day when we finally moved out from there, I saw what had happened to that enemy soldier who had been the one who thought his friends were there. It made me sick to my stomach to see well, I'm getting choked up. Oh, no. It was very emotional, though. I'm sorry. And it was very... It's the first time I'd seen anything like that. Somebody really blown apart, so to speak. So to this day, I don't mess around with any kind of weapons. I wouldn't do it at all. So that was... So then the next... I think it was around the next day. Maybe there was a day or two in between. Again, we're moving in the daytime. It's around mid-morning. And um, the fellas in the, the guys in the front said they found a trench line. And word would come back, you know. Then they were going to follow this trench line to see what was there. Well, they got shot at. And um, again, there's all this noise with shooting and so forth. Um, and these, fella, these guys came back, and some of them were bloodied up, but I was led to believe none of them were really hurt seriously, which was a good thing. So while this is going on, myself and my friends, we were in a little clearing. And we laid flat on the ground because there were still bullets right flying right overhead. And probably nobody in this room's been to a place where there's been bullets flying right overhead. But when they fly overhead, you can hear them. It's sort of like a noise. It sounded to me like they were hitting trees and ricocheting off. Maybe bullets break the sound barrier. I don't know what the noise was, but it was close. It was really close. Um, so we're la I'm laying on the ground, and my friends are all laying on the ground. 
Um, and we had called in helicopter gunships. And um, I'm sure we we're going to call in artillery and everything. But the, gun, the helicopters were firing from up, from above and behind where I was. And I laying on the ground, I remember turning my head to look up behind me and um, the helicopters were firing grenade launchers, which little, like hand grenades, automatically fired, and they looked like little black dots coming out of the sky, like thump, 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 thump. I didn't hear the thump, thump, but I could see these little black things. <sighs> Still bullets flying overhead. And the next thing I knew, my leg exploded. And my first thought was, well, one of these things from a helicopter actually hit me in the leg, but that's not what really happened. And I really don't know what happened, but what I was wounded with was shrapnel from something. It could have been something that the helicopters fired and they hit trees on the way down behind us and the it shrapnel flew in all directions. Or the official word was the enemy had planted some kind of mines, again, Claymore mines and trees behind us and they detonated those. But anyway, I was wounded in the back of my leg. I had a, had a broken uh, femur, a thigh bone, a lot of a lot of tissue damage and skin missing and all that kind of stuff. Um, hurt like crazy. I'm sure I was in shock. And I was also wounded with a piece of shrapnel in my upper uh, forearm, right arm, and um, that uh, severed an artery and it injured a nerve. So my arm was out in front of me laying on the ground, which was bright red, that's how you bleed out with an artery. and. Um, with the nerve being hurt, I could not feel my arm. So my arm's out, I got my arm out in front of me on the table in front of me right now, but I could see this red thing and I couldn't feel it. And I thought, what is that? You know, I'm sure I wasn't that calm about it, but I, I didn't know what it was, let's put it that way. Eventually I could figure I could move my, you know, eventually I knew what it was, I knew it was my arm. And at the same time, a tree next to me had been wounded with shrapnel and it fell across my hips and fractured bones in my pelvis. So I was a pretty much a mess, to be honest, and um, that was terrible. Terrible pain, terrible shock. I wasn't the only one. There were other guys wounded. Um, one of my friends was killed at that time. Um, I don't think I knew that right away, but... Um, so the medics kind of... I remember they kind of... I don't know if they took a liking to me, but I remember hearing the medics say, okay, we're gonna like make a stretcher out of a poncho for Doug, and you guys, the rest of you guys do the same thing for these other guys that are wounded. So they got me like in the center of this clearing where, you know, hopefully I could be taken out, uh, I could be ext extract, evacuated by a med uh, medevac helicopter. Um, so I was laying there looking up at the sky and I could see these medevac helicopters coming. They were close, but the enemy was still close and the enemy started firing their, uh, rifles at the helicopters and the helicopters left um, and, um, and I don't blame them, I might have left too and I'm thinking oh my god what how long am I going to lay here now before any, and before this happened they put a tourniquet on my arm and they'd also give me like a shot of morphine so I wasn't feeling much pain I guess um, she got to come back yeah she got okay yeah, check on her brother. Okay. So I was laying on the ground, the helicopters left, and something happened, but before I talk about what happened, um, I'm, I'm going to save this for a few seconds, but I'd say after maybe five, ten minutes, 
I don't know how long it was. It was kind of a blurry time. The helicopters did return, um, but the jungle was too thick to land, so they would lower some kind of a, a stretcher device with like a, a cable, and they had a hoist on the helicopter, and somehow they attached me in this stretcher device. I don't know what it was, and they hauled me up out of the out of the jungle. And the way I remember, it was like I was. It was like I was vertical, like I was almost standing up, not laying down. Because I remember looking down at the ground, and I'm afraid of high places, and I'm thinking I should probably be afraid of this. And I was also thinking maybe the enemy's going to shoot at me or shoot at this helicopter. But none of those, neither of those things happened. And when I got up there, they slid me on the floor of the helicopter underneath a canvas seat. And there was a fellow on the canvas seat prior to me, so I wasn't the first one that they, that they lifted out of the jungle. And this fellow was, I think he's the one that died. I don't know that for a fact. But he was bleeding very badly, and there was his blood dripping through this canvas seat down onto me. And, um, but, you know, that didn't bother me at that time. And I'd, and I'd like to say, as soon as I pretty much got wounded, as far as I was concerned, the war ended for me. I was a total different mindset. Instead of thinking, I'm in, this, I'm in Vietnam, I'm a soldier, I was out of there, and mentally I was out of there right away. I knew I was out of there, and I'm thinking, well, I got wounded, but they can fix this up. I'll be, I'll, I'll be up walking around, and I'll be home in two or three weeks. Well, <laughs> that wasn't quite the case. I was naive about that. Um, so the medevac helicopters took me and this other guy, we were the only two on there, back to LZ Grant, the place I mentioned earlier. They dropped us off there. And then there were other helicopters that took us from there to an army hospital, a field, some kind of a field hospital, I guess. And then the medevacs, they kept going back and forth to the, you know, where the fighting had been. The other guys, they just went from LZ Grant to the hospital. Um, and I remember one day I was at LZ Grant, I'm laying on the ground again, waiting to get on the second helicopter. And all these guys, I didn't know them, all these guys who were there, they came to, you know, look, they wanted to see what was going on, what had happened. Kind of made me feel like a little bit of a hero or something. I don't know. Like here I am, and these guys are all looking at me. I don't know. So they took me to this hospital in Tay Ninh, and um, before I even got in the hospital, um, I remember there was a chaplain, or no, well, it was a chaplain. It was a Catholic priest, I guess, and he asked me if I wanted last rites. I'm not Catholic, but again, I'm getting choked up a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I thought if he's going to give me last rites. I'm going to take them. So yeah, he gave me last rites. And then I remember like one of the order, one of the medics or nurses or doctors, they said, well, we can go ahead and, you know, we can go ahead and put him asleep. He doesn't have to suffer anymore. But before that, they started blood. And the blood must have been frozen because oh, I remember I was shivering. It was so cold. But then they put me to sleep. And, um, and they used ether to put me to sleep. And I went to about three different hospitals in Vietnam, one after another. And they used ether each time. Oh, and it made me so sick when I'd wake up. Hmm. But, and I guess they'd put me to sleep and they'd clean the wounds or do whatever they could do. And I'd stay in that hospital for a couple days. Then I'd go to a bigger hospital. I ended up closer to uh, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City. And from there, that's where then I flew from there to an army hospital in Japan. And that was on a a C-141, I guess, a big jet, Air Force jet. Um, 
I remember when I was still in Vietnam in one of those hospitals, a sergeant came and I, I think he gave me a Purple Heart. The physically gave me one at that time. I, hmm. I'm not sure about that. And some of our officers came and they're the ones that said what had happened to us was that the enemy had, you know, had planted these mines and that's what wounded us. But later on, one of the, my best friend who was also wounded, he was also, he went to Japan also. And he said he heard one of the sergeants saying over the radio, tell those helicopters to stop firing. We're taking too many casualties on the ground. So I don't know if I was wounded by friendly fire or not. I, I really don't know the answer to that. I never will know, I guess. Um, so I got to Japan. Same thing happened. There's a young doctor came. He said, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm going to operate on you tomorrow which he did, and again they used ether, and again it made me sick. Um, and that night, so it was a, I think it was, uh, for some reason I'm thinking it was a Sunday night, I don't really know why I think Sunday, but that night, before I was operated on, I started in this terrible pain, and like my lower side, back, it ended up I had kidney stones, I didn't know it, but I remember it was so bad, I tried to get off like the hospital, get out of the hospital bed, but I was in a cast that must have weighed 500 pounds. If I rolled out of that bed, I'd probably gone through the floor and down to the center of the earth or something. I don't know what would have happened. But they didn't acknowledge, nobody, they didn't care about that, and I didn't know what it was. But if you've never had kidney stones, they're not much fun. So anyway, they did their thing. They operated. Um, and when I woke up, I had been catheterized. <laughs> and... Um, I remember one, I guess I was coming back from like the recovery room or something. And if you don't know what a catheter is, it takes the place of how you would normally urinate. Let's put it that way, I guess. And I was really backed up. I mean, something wasn't working right. I remember a chaplain said, well, he said, what's wrong? You could tell that I was really not feeling well. And I said, I said, I can't pee. And he thought I said, I can't see. And he said, well, he said, well, my son, there's worse things than being blind. I wasn't blind. I just couldn't go to the bathroom right away. <laughs> I don't know. That's a, that's a little bit of a humor I can inject. <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, so I've probably stayed in the hospital in Japan for about a, oh, I'd say about a week and a half. From the time I was wounded until the time I got back to the United States, it was exactly three weeks. I imagine I was in Vietnam in about a week and a half, going hospital to hospital, and I was in Japan in an army hospital another week and a half. And in Japan, I was in a great big cast, so I never saw Japan. I never got out of the bed, and, you know, nothing like that. Um, we all had little TVs by our beds, and I remember one of the programs was an old TV program called Bonanza, which was like Western with cowboys and stuff like that. And, and it was all spoken in J Japanese, but they had English subtitles, so it was kind of interesting to see these American cowboys speaking Japanese. Um, so I left Japan in, on an Air Force hospital plane. It's a big jet called a C-141. And they had seats along the windows, and guy, soldiers who were or guys who were wounded who could walk, ambulatory. They got to sit in the seats, and like on the interior of the walls, they had like stretchers 
um, kind of like bunk beds going all the way up. I don't know how many, or maybe five or six of them going up, you know, the walls on each side of the inside of the plane. I was on the very bottom one of those, laying on a stretcher, and we left Japan, and we didn't get very far, and they must have developed engine. They had some kind of trouble with the airplane, so they turned around, and when they got back closer to Japan, it's probably some kind of a safety regulation, but they opened the doors to the airplane. We're still in the air, and it was cold, and there was snow blowing in, and I'm sure we were over water at this time. And I'm thinking, if this plane goes down and I'm in all this cast, I'm going to go right to the bottom. But that didn't happen. We landed, and we got a new, new airplane, a new crew. We got, they got everybody from one plane to the airplane, which must have been a major ordeal for guys like me who are in cast that weigh two or three hundred pounds. But anyway, we flew from Japan to Hawaii. And when we got to Hawaii, they refueled the plane and they lowered the ramp in the back. And I could look out, laying down on this bottom row of stretchers that were like bunks. I could see the airfield in Hawaii, but I, that's as close as I got to Hawaii at that time. And I think guys who were ambulatory could get out and maybe walk around and stuff like that. Went straight from Hawaii to um, Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland and straight from there to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in D.C. Um, so the, I didn't get the kind of homecoming that some people have read about where people uh, either cheered soldiers returning or booed them and spit at them and threw eggs at them in the airport. None of that happened. None of that to me. I went straight to an Army hospital. And when I got there, it was just about daybreak. It was morning. And when I got, actually got to the hospital, Got to where I was going to, there's a ward with about, I'd say, 75 or more men in beds. The doctor came around, he made his morning rounds, and it was on a Friday. And um, he said, we're going to take this guy down and we're going we're to put him in traction. I don't know if he said those words, but that's what they did. Um, if it, if, and if I hadn't got there early enough, I might have just laid there all weekend because the doctor may not have made rounds on Saturday. I don't know. But they took me to a downstairs to wherever they, I don't know where they took me, and they removed that cast, and they drilled a hole through my shin bone. And I remember the doctor had like an intern or a resident, a female doctor, and he said, all right, you're going to drill a hole in this guy's leg, and I'm going to stand here and watch. And this doctor was kind of a jerk, I thought. But anyway, she drilled a hole through my leg, and it hurt like crazy, but it didn't last very long. And then they took me, let's see, and somewhere, I guess it was right after that, they, they like bent my leg, manipulated my leg, because it had been straight in a cast for at least three weeks, well, for exactly three weeks, I guess, and I didn't think my leg was going to bend, I thought it was going to break, but it bent, ended up they put me in traction, which means you're tied to the bed with ropes and weights at the end of the ropes. So I laid in bed for six straight months, and that would have been on a Friday, and I think they'd given me like, like a pain shot or something, and I think I slept that whole afternoon. When I woke up back in my bed, in the, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Walter Reed Army Hospital now, Trinity. When I woke up, it was, getting, it was dark, and I said, is there any way I can call my family? And they said, well, it's getting kind of late to do that, but they had like a mobile phone. It was, like a portable phone booth almost, something on wheels. It wasn't a phone booth, but it was something like that. 
And that was the first time that I was able to talk to my family. And I remember, um, I remember my mom saying, what do you have like all your fingers and toes and legs and everything? You know, because the word, I, I don't know, they didn't know how badly I was injured. And frankly, I didn't know how bad I was injured either, but I knew I had all my body parts. Um, but the word I was on, I'd say out of maybe 80 guys, I'd say 78 of them were amputees. I was one of the few that wasn't, but yeah, I'd had all my body parts. Um, so I laid in bed like that in traction for six straight months, never out of bed, not once. Um, it got to be a dark time. It really did. Um, it, it wasn't all a dark time, but it, part of it was a very depressing sort of time. Um, and the reason they didn't cast me up right away, they, there's so much like skin and everything damage on the back of my leg. They wanted to be able to treat that, and if there was a cast on there, you would have rubbed on it or something. I don't know. But anyway, after about six months of that, they, first thing they did, they put me on a tilt table. They, it was a table, a horizontal table, and then they could tilt it. Because I hadn't been on my feet for six months or longer, and that was kind of a dizzying experience. There were a few other complications. But shortly after that, they put me in a big cast, and then I was allowed to go home, like for a 30-day leave. And this was, no, it's about the fall, beginning of fall 1969. I know I was home for the World Series that year when the New York Mets, I don't know who they beat, but they won the World Series like an amazing team or an underdog team. So I'd be home for 30 days. I'd go back for a week or two. They'd do some x-rays, another cast, and then I'd get to come home again. And that lasted up until about Christmas. And then after that, then they, wanted, they wouldn't let me, they didn't want me to come home anymore. I'm not saying I didn't come home, but they want me to stay there because that's when they do like medical evaluations to see like what percentage of disability the Army and or the Veterans Administration was gonna have to give me. So I'd had, I myself, and this happened to all the guys, but we'd like make the rounds. One day we'd go to the urology clinic. One day we'd go to the psychology clinic, you know, psych psychiatric clinic. They wanted to evaluate everything they could think of and they didn't want us to be gone. We had to be there for that. Um, and I was off and on, I still had trouble with these kidney stones I mentioned. And I, I remember I was so bad, I, I told them, I said, I don't think I, at this time I, don't, I was in a, I wasn't even a cast anymore, I was in a brace at this time on my leg. And I said, I don't think I can get out of bed. I wanna, you know, I don't feel well enough. And they said, well, you, you have to go on sick call. And sick call was in a, I had to take a bus to get there and it didn't make sense in a way. I was in a, in a hospital. It was like an annex for the hospital. I think it was Silver Springs, Maryland. But they, I had to get on the, I, you know, I had to pretend like I felt good and go do what I had to do. Um, however, I would get weekend passes, and I, I was coming home like every other weekend. I was flying home. By that time, I had plenty of money because I'd been getting money the whole time in Vietnam and I had nothing to spend it on. Money was no object. So I was coming home about every other weekend. Um, and towards the end of that, 
they said, you know, after I made the rounds of all the clinics, they said, well, we're going we're to have all your evaluations done like in two weeks. And when it's done, we'll send you a message. I don't know how they're going to send me a message. I didn't, there were no cell phones or anything back then. But anyway, a friend of mine, he said, he said, well, if you go there like tomorrow, he said, they probably have that all done. You know, they, you don't have to wait. So I went back to the main hospital at Walter Reed from this annex. And sure enough, the guy said, yeah, here it is. And he like went over it with me. He said, if you sign this, you can go home. <laughs> so I signed it and got an airplane and I was home that same day. And, but nobody knew I was coming home. My parents had gone on a family vacation. They were gone. My brother, my older brother, still lived at home at that time. He was a school teacher. And he came to the airport and got me, and he had to teach school in the daytime. But boy, that was a wonderful feeling to be home. Yeah, you got back. It was wonderful. I had a leg brace and a cane, and I had a brace, a little thing for my hand from the nerve damage in my arm, which I never used again, not once. I, never threw, I think I threw that away. But I remember my first day, that first second, the first full day I was home, from where I lived, I could walk to a, a Dairy Queen and with this leg brace and with the cane, I remember just like, you know, getting hot dogs and a malt or something. Yeah. And our high school football stadium was right close by, and I sat there, and it was warm. It was springtime. <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, so from the time I was, I think I spent about 16 months altogether, but part of that time I was coming home on 30-day leaves and stuff like that. It was about 16 months. Um, so I, I, there's something I wanted to hear. I wanted you to hear me say, Trinity. Okay. So when, when I was wounded, you've heard me say some of this stuff before, but the medevacs came and the medevacs had to leave because they were fired upon. So I'm laying on the ground in the jungle and I, and I have to qualify this by saying I had a shot of morphine, but I had this experience where I felt like I was like out of my body, no pain, no nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, no, no, I shouldn't say no, nothing, but I, but I felt like I was kind of in the sky or something, and it was like an out-of-body thing, and my family was all there in the sky with me, who I hadn't seen nor spoken to for nine months at that point. We didn't have cell phones or computers, nothing like that. You couldn't, you know, couldn't communicate like you do today, and um, our, my family and I were able to communicate with each other. It was... It was nonverbal though, like it was just, um, well, I forget what the word is, like, you know, you know, I could, like we could read each other's minds. And it was just, as ex it was, and what we've exchanged with each other was feelings of love, love for one another. And I don't know how it is in everybody else's family, but my wife knows this. I mean, in our family, you know, we didn't tell each other we loved each other that often. We, we loved each other, but we never said it. But at this time, we said it, and, um, well, we felt it, I should say. I didn't. Yeah. And to this day, that was the happiest, most peaceful feeling I've ever, ever experienced. It was just... Wow, yeah. It was just wonderful. Yeah. And I don't know how long that lasted. It might have lasted 30 seconds or five minutes, I don't know. And then that's when the, after that's when the helicopters came back. Um, so before I do, if Trinity or anybody has questions... One of the big regrets that I have about all this, um, one of my friends here is from Hanoi, which was then North Vietnam. When I was young and I was a soldier, we were all young, 
young guys, real young. We didn't know any different. They said that the Vietnamese were our enemies. I didn't even know the Vietnamese. And the American government, I don't think, tried to understand the Vietnamese culture, the people, and I didn't either. And I feel really bad about that. Um, we use slang words, and I'm not going to say them now, <laughs> but um, to describe people. And um, and our, I had nothing to do with it personally, but like we would destroy, I didn't. But I've read where villages were destroyed, and that was so important to the people. That's where their ancestral burial grounds were. But, you know, America, we just didn't, didn't care, I guess, or didn't know about it. Probably didn't care about it. Again, I wasn't a part of any of this, and I never saw it happen, but it happened. It just indiscriminate bombing and, mm -hmm. and you know, treating everybody as the enemy, who were a lot of people... You know, they were friendly people. They were caught in the middle of it. Um, and I really feel bad about that today, that I was that naive nor, or that ignorant or whatever. I was very naive about things then. But So now one of my bucket list plans is to return to Vietnam in the near future and hopefully meet the people and get to know the people. Right. That's very important to me. Yeah. Um, okay, why don't you ask a question while I recover here? Well, I think I need to recover too. I'm getting emotional seeing you get emotional. <laughs> I guess I've got one question, and that's... <laughs> oh, it's hard. <coughs> well, before you ask your question, <coughs> a lot of people want to know, like, what did I feel about the war and stuff? Like I said, when I was in high school and in college, if the government said that was what was important and meaningful and just and legit, I thought it was. I said, you know, I thought that's okay. If that's what they say, that's got to be it. And that didn't really, really didn't change for me until I was pretty close to the end of my time at Walter Reed Hospital. And I was, by then I was in this ANX hospital it's in Maryland. And these guys I knew who were amputees, they'd say, well, the government's going to give me 10% disability or 5%. And they said, because they can fit me up with an artificial leg or an artificial arm. And I've got all my arms and all my legs. And I ended up with a ton of disability, a lot. And, you know, it was good for me, I guess. And I get a lot of compensation today. But I thought it was so unjust, these guys who are missing legs and arms, and I really, I really got angry at the government, and I, and I really kind of pinned it on President Nixon. I don't know why I blamed him specifically. Well, he was a president. He was right. the commander-in-chief. And, um, and I don't think I've ever voted for his party since mm -hmm. then. And I wasn't old enough to vote before I went, so I've never voted for his party. All right. Um, I do have a question. It is, how did you transition back into civilian life after... Um, Exiting the military service and getting back from the hospital. Okay, so Trinity wants to know about transitioning from military life, hospital life, to civilian life. Mm -hmm. I think I think I think my mindset was that just to put that all behind me, not to dwell on it, but to move forward. When I think I did that, I got a job almost right away with the civil service as a veteran. I got points on the tests. I became a, a letter carrier for a few years before I found out I didn't want to work that hard the rest of my life. 
but I delivered mail, um, bought a car, um, had a first marriage, which was kind of rushed into and was a mistake, but it was a mistake. And I shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have done that. Um, and it just seemed like, I don't know, when I first got back uh, home and was, you know, still in cast and stuff like that, nobody ever asked, not one person that I remember ever asked, like, what was it like? What happened? What would you want to talk about? Maybe they thought it would upset me so much, or maybe they didn't want to hear the answer. But as far as transitioning, I kept all that stuff inside of me. And I, I'm sure I had PTSD, although I didn't know that at the time. And if somebody had asked me, I wouldn't have been able to tell them. I'd have gotten so choked up, it would have been a big mess. But I really felt like I had that in me and I wanted to get it out. But I never got it out. Um, so, let's see. So I decided I didn't want to be a letter carrier the rest of my life. And NKU was brand new then. And I thought, oh, maybe I can use GI benefits and go to the NKU. And when I came to this NKU, this campus, and I talked to somebody who represented veterans at registration, she found out my disabilities, disabilities, and she said, well, you're eligible. You're eligible for a lot more than GI benefits. It was, I think it's called Chapter 34 or something. But I had, a, I had a full ride. Everything was paid for. Books were paid for, tuition. Um, if I needed supplies, if I needed a computer, I don't know if we had computers then, they'd have bought me one, and they gave me money, a stipend. I got paid every month. So I just, I had already had college, but I went ahead and finished up nonstop, summer, uh, fall, you know, I went all year round and finished up at NKU. Um, and then I still had the PTSD after that. Mm -hmm. I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to get in, I thought I wanted to get into teaching and it didn't quite work out. It's kind of a long story, which I'm not going to get into now. <laughs> um, I ended up, what did I end up doing? Uh, I ended up getting some other jobs. And I don't know what year it was. It was about 20 years ago, about 20 years ago, which is about 2012. I was approached to do an oral history exactly like I'm doing right now by someone and I still had that PTSD and it was terrible. I, whatever I said made, I didn't make any sense. I didn't, it wasn't any good. And, she, and I told her that and the lady said, well, if you want to submit something in writing that could go to the Library of Congress, you could do that. And I thought maybe I will. So I started to type a memoir and I typed, I ended up over the course of over a year doing over a hundred pages and that's what saved me. It was so healing that, uh, and, you know, it's just, it was like a labor of love and I never wanted to let that go because the more I typed, the better I felt. And I know towards the end I started to repeat myself and add on and add on because it, um, and a friend of mine who I know from church said, you know, he said, I can edit this for you because it was just really rough. It was all caps because I don't know how to type. And he edited it, and my son uh, turned it into a format for Amazon, which now it's a book on, an e-book on Amazon. But the, that, tra that writing was the biggest thing that helped me transition. It really helped me a lot. Before that, I thought I knew what I was doing. I was in a rush to get a job and get a car and this and that. I didn't know what I was doing, though. I really had no clue what I was doing. And I had some battles with substance abuse, and I'm sure that was connected to that. Mm -hmm. 
And what is the title of your ebook so that people can go and find it and read it? Oh, I'm glad you asked. The title of the ebook is um, A Soldier's, it's a Vietnam memoir. This is the title A Vietnam Vem Memoir, A Soldier's Journey from the Jungle to Salvation. Um, so I've talked to many groups telling the same story that I just told now. I, I thoroughly enjoy doing that. Before I did that writing, I couldn't have done it. Um, I've helped been a presenter at a couple of um, continuing college education classes. They have an affiliation with the University of Cincinnati, but um, it's a major part of my life. And I, as I think I said in our class, being in the Army, being in Vietnam, everything I've talked about, it's, it's never left me. It's, I mean, it's a big part of my life, and it always will be. It's just, I think an experience like that just shapes somebody's life. It tr literally, really and truly does. And um, Sounds good. Um, yeah, thanks so much. So I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, the semester with Professor Eagles and classmates and his daughter. Um, I don't know, we've gone over a lot of things. And it's, it's, there's been a lot of times in class I wanted to raise my hand and say, you know, what you're saying is not exactly the way I remember it. But I've kind of, I've held back on that. But, but this has been a good experience for me, and this podcast has been a good experience also. I hope, I hope it's meaningful to others, and um, I know it's been meaningful for me. Mm. And I think it goes to show like just how much of a journey it is. Like I feel like there's really no place in life where you can say I'm I've completed my journey from healing from Vietnam War. Like it's as you said something that shapes your life and just stays with you and you evolve over time. The more that you talk yeah. about it and kind of how things develop and I mean you're going to Vietnam like next summer potentially too so I think that's just going to be yet another step in the journey yeah I've got friends one of my friends is sitting at this table Anne whose family may let you know show me where to go and how not to get into trouble while I'm there and it maybe even let me see their house maybe let me stay in their house you never know <laughs> of course um, and I've got other friends who are international students who live in other parts of Vietnam both what we used to call North Vietnam and South Vietnam, but now just Vietnam. And it should be really meaningful. And as far as transitioning and so forth, PTSD and all that, it's really important for a veteran to talk to another veteran. And I don't guess Professor Eagles is a veteran, mm -hmm. but he might as well be. He knows, he's, you know, he was born in Vietnam, he knows all about it. And for me to interact with him over the course of this semester, it's been really good, really important. Yeah, it's been great having you there too. I really, yeah, I really appreciated you and your brother there. Really beneficial.